0: This is the Bill Kelly Show
1: podcast. A uh, story that we brought to you yesterday, of course, Hamilton's uh, city manager says that changes are needed to be made after this uh, audit report that we talked about yesterday on the program that uh, was uh, revealed late last week, actually. Joining us to talk about uh, the report itself and the ramifications is the city manager for the city of Hamilton. Chris Murray joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Chris. How are you today?
2: I'm doing fine, Bill. How are you?
1: Uh, all things considered. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> there you go. Let's let, let's talk a little bit about this. I uh, think you recorded yesterday saying this report blindsided you. Uh, did did you have any expectation at all that there was going to be the, these uh, these sorts of revelations in this report?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I had a, uh, a read of the article, and I mean, in terms of blindsided, let's just be clear. I mean, audit provides a work plan every year, and in that work plan, they identify what it is that they're going to focus their their energies and efforts on. So. Not blindsided in the sense that they're going to look at how we uh, utilize consultants. So, just I want to set that record straight. But in terms of the findings, um, you know, obviously whenever audit does go in, uh, they're going to look at everything, and they're going to uh, uh, they're going to uh, communicate their findings. And some of these findings are are very concerning to me and to uh, senior management, and this is what's going to necessitate some of the actions and changes that we got to make.
1: And, and let's be clear on this, and I'm, I'm not trying to whitewash this in by any stretch of the imagination, but but any government, whether it's municipal, federal, provincial, or any business, I guess for that matter, I mean they all get audited, and I've I've yet to hear of an auditor that says, hey, you know what, everything with you guys is fine. Don't you, you just keep doing this? They're always going to try to find shortcomings and shortfalls. And in a company, as which is what the city is, as a corporation, uh, there are going to be some problems. But there's some glaring mistakes here and some things that really stand out here, Chris.
2: I agree, and uh, and I think just uh, you know things as uh, as as obvious as uh, how you uh how you account for expenditures in a budget so i mean every budget has a number of line items and and how something gets you know uh, recorded in the wrong category i mean that's you know to some that may seem you know minor but you know nonetheless you have basic accounting practices that you're uh, expected to follow and uh so that's one thing i mean other comments that were made in the report about the uh, consultant uh, reports or findings uh, having been submitted and, and uh, uh, apparently not utilized. I mean, obviously, uh, I need to look into that to understand what's what's really behind those statements. Um, and then, you know, there are other comments that were made about the ideas that were put forward that uh, uh, could have uh, resulted in savings to our organization. In this case, I think the figure was in, in excess of $200,000 you know why wouldn't we be going after those savings and uh uh you know things of that nature and and just overall the basic utilization of consultants and uh you know are we using them way too much and uh you know is this work that our own uh staff could uh, uh could undertake and you know that those are some of the things that uh that stand out and uh you know and and absolutely i mean auditors are there to not just find the things that you do wrong. They do find things that you do right. And so we've had a a number of reports that were thin in comparison in terms of the number of pages and and demonstrating that we do things well. But this one uh, will not be ignored. It can't be ignored. And, uh, you know, I need to make sure that my front line that oversees projects uh, and their management are following the rules. And then I need to make sure that my second line, of defense, which is my finance people and my procurement people and HR and legal and so on, that, uh, you know, they are there to make sure that the rules have been followed. Uh, and then, of course, you know, my third line, of defense, is my auditor. And so uh, ideally you don't want your auditor to, uh, to report on, on uh, things that you failed on because you've got them right but uh, that as you point out that isn't always the case and uh, and that's why we need to value what auditors do.
1: Chris uh, Councillor Collins, Collins was on the program yesterday commenting about this and he suggested that maybe what might be needed here is more oversight on a day-to-day basis about uh, city activities what are your thoughts on that?
2: I, I don't disagree. I, this is what we need to go uh, go through, I think, uh, pretty much with a fine-toothed comb. Um, you know, make sure that you're frontline people that are responsible for, you know, uh, for, for bringing projects forward to make sure they're brought forward in a proper manner, that there's, you know, solid business cases that support those projects, and that when those projects are approved and you're utilizing consultants or you're making expenditures that... You know you're following uh, you know all the rules, and if we need to put uh, a little bit more clarity into that process, then we will do that. Um, but the oversight, then, that I go back to what I just said. My second line of defense is you know my uh, the folks that are uh, that are in corporate services. Uh, so that again, that's my finance, my procurement, my legal, my HR, uh, to make sure that uh, you know they're tracking and assisting. Um, these project managers uh, with their work. I mean, they're they're incredibly talented people that, uh, you know, uh, can uh, help people, uh, you know, uh, avoid mistakes in the first place, um, provide good advice to my front line that oversees these projects and so that they're done right. Um, you know, it, it is about getting it done, but it's about getting it done in the right way.
1: When when we see the the amount of money that's being spent on consultants, and, and this is not the first time this issue has come up at City Hall, but it, it raises a couple of questions, uh, and and I want to ask you about these. One is you have to ask yourself then is are, are you understaffed there in certain departments that you have to rely on consultants to do work that staff maybe could or should be doing?
2: I mean, that's definitely part of it. Uh, I think yesterday uh, our general manager of finance and corporate services um uh, you know did make that uh, that statement clear, and uh, I mean we have a high volume of work, uh, but you know it's no excuse for getting it done in the way it should be done and uh, but you know there's no question sometimes that work uh, that workflow, that overload is is dealt with through consultants and I mean, council's been rightfully very clear about uh, adding more full-time employees to our organization, and certainly you know, uh, uh, puts, uh, you know, uh, pressure on us to not increase compliment. Um, And so, uh, you know, and they do expect the work to get done. So how we manage our resources, I think, is key. But I want to bring one other thing to everyone's attention. And I look at my city solicitor, for example. Um, When she started, we were spending somewhere in the order of about a million and a half dollars on outside legal support and um over four years she whittled that down to just over i think it was about a hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars so quite a significant drop. What she did was she uh, uh was uh knew very clearly how uh how much the range of talent that she had within her lawyers um and that she gave uh more opportunity to uh to her own staff to take on what might be stretch challenges for them. Uh, and uh, with some good results. I mean, we not only dropped the budget, uh, you know, our staff, and sometimes the best thing you can do for people is to give them challenging work. And, uh, you know, I think people always think it's money that motivates people. Uh, sometimes it's not that at all. Sometimes it's just, you know, an, an opportunity to gain experience doing work that you don't normally do. So I want to make sure that we're not missing those opportunities for staff that are, you know, highly motivated and skilled that, uh, you know, we're able to uh, tap into their, um, you know, their expertise and their work ethic and uh, give them a chance to do work that maybe other times we, uh, you know, we simply uh, find someone in the private sector to do for us.
1: You, you talked about some of these things being, I guess, misplaced in, in different categories, et cetera. You know, maybe they're in the wrong item on a ledger, whatever the case might be. Uh, that That's something I might do when I'm doing my taxes in a couple of days. But, I mean, these are the people that are paid to do it this way, and you have to ask them... Uh, the, the questions should be asked, I guess, at this stage, Chris. You know, about competency. And these these guys are supposed to be able to do this. I mean, you can get into a lot of trouble if you if you misplace some of these numbers and money goes missing. And we had that happen some years ago. You may remember at the city when there's some money missing from uh, I think it was fare boxes at the HSR, uh, and and it raises all kinds of questions I and mean, raises questions about credibility of staff at that point too.
2: Yeah, and and I think these are the things that we want to um, sit down with our auditor and go through the specific examples that lead to these kinds of statements, and uh, you know, and understand exactly what it is that uh, you know is causing people to uh, you know to account for costs in incorrect in ways. So I mean, if it's training, then let's address training. I mean, um, you know, but we we need to. I think get at the root of uh, of the evidence that's in the in the report, and uh, so that's why I I, I do want to sit down with Charles, and uh, there'll be a number of us that are going to go through every item, and Council uh, expects, and 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 the auditor has recommended that uh, uh, not only we do that, but we have a very clear uh, action plan. Now, having said all of that, which I think makes perfect sense, you know, I do want to say that uh, a couple of months ago. Um, council did give direction to, uh, corporate services and I include myself in the corporate services, uh, uh, family in saying that, uh, you know, maybe more has to be done, more authority, more, um, power, if you will, uh, has got to reside in the hands of those people that are responsible for corporate services and, and, and less, uh, you know, autonomy for those, uh, those operating departments that, uh, like you know the public works and so on that uh, uh do a lot of work do a lot provide a lot of services that you know the checks and balances have got to be um looked at and reinforced and, and I don't disagree at all I think uh you know we we have to make sure that um you know we don't uh overburden the system um uh with uh you know uh uh, too much, as someone called it, red tape. But uh, you know, red tape exists sometimes for a reason, and that is to uh, make sure that uh, you know we're accountable at the end of the day for every dollar that we spend. This report, as I said yesterday, what what I guess bothers me more than anything else about it is that you know people, when they pay their tax dollars, and there's a certain trust and, and confidence that uh, they're giving government when they do that that they're going to deliver services right. Um, and so, and, and this report, I think, uh, is causing a lot of us uh, a lot of concern.
1: Well, and that's uh, what I've heard as well. And, and, I mean, you've been on this show, Chris, over the last couple of months as you've gone through the budget process with city councilors, talking about how difficult the challenges are and how we have to look for every savings dollar that you can save and, and you know, spend every dollar wisely. And when you see these numbers, I mean, it does raise questions about whether or not everybody on staff buys into that.
2: And that's, I think that's, that's the fundamentals of this whole, uh, this whole report and just the, uh, the, you know, the oversight, uh, and the responsibilities that occur, you know, at the levels that I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the first level being those that are responsible for the projects, bringing them forward and how they get implemented and managed the people that have, uh, oversight in terms of, uh, you know, the, uh, are the rules being adhered to, uh, and, uh. And our mistakes being made, and if so, why aren't we catching them sooner? And then the third line of defense is my auditor, and uh, you know, to go in uh, periodically and and start to look at uh, whether or not procedures are being followed and so on. So, you know, that that's that's how we uh, make sure that where mistakes are being made, that they're uh, they do get caught that way. But you know, as as you know, any reasonable person. Uh, would say, you know, well, you know, if you can avoid making mistakes, why aren't you doing that? And so, um, and this is really where we're at. Is just, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a lot of money that's being spent on important work and how it's getting, uh, how it, the oversight is, is being uh, uh, supported. Um, you know, this is where I have some, some questions. And uh, we will, you know, obviously get to the bottom of it, and we will uh, see a number of recommendations and actions will follow.
1: What kind of actions? Are we talking disciplinary actions, retraining? Where where are you heading here?
2: Well, I I think, you know, to I'm not going to sit here and, and, uh, and threaten my organization uh, with discipline, uh, you know, before we've had a chance to get to the bottom of all the statements that are in the document. So I don't think that's how you... Uh, uh you know i don't think that's a terribly effective way of uh of uh you know uh, seeing value for people's tax dollars and for managing an organization so i want to understand the specifics behind the statements um uh, which is i think a reasonable thing and then uh, and act accordingly if it's training it's training if it's you know, clear rules, uh, and those rules are going to be adhered to by not just those that are in the front line, but uh, those that oversee corporate services, then let's get the rules in place. Um, but, but
1: Chris, don't they know? Again. Don't they know those rules anyway? Isn't that part of the training when when they're, they're assuming the position hired into the city or, or if they're rising up the corporate ladder? And I mean, maybe one of the more blatant examples of that is the one that came out of the report about gapping, which... Uh, which uh, is is basically money that's left over at the end of the year from you know things like maternity leave and stuff like that that's already budgeted for as savings you guys do that every year yeah. some of your members of staff apparently looked at that as free money and said oh we can spend that on consultants now uh, that's not their money to spend and they should yeah. know that going in
2: right and i think uh, in terms of the whole uh, gapping rules i think right now if it's uh, the the assumption is that the gapping responsibilities in the hand of corporate services and i'm going Uh, that's not the way to ensure that gapping is treated the way it's supposed to be treated. And I think the gapping should be in the hands of the departments. Here's your target. You have to hit these targets. It's not up to you to uh, do whatever you want with the money. And, uh, you know, so I think the pressure has got to be in that instance put on the departments. Um, So that's the kinds of things that right now I think we got to look at, you know, where does responsibility for gapping reside and is it in the right place? And if it's not, then fix it. Uh, that's one example.
0: Um, well, here's, here's know.
1: another one. Capital consulting jobs, 13 of them went over budget by $13 million. Uh, you got to look at, if somebody should have looked at those contracts, I mean, did, you know, with those open-ended contracts, with their penalty clauses, I mean, you know, the sorts of things that you would think would be put into contracts like that might have been missing in those. I mean, somebody needs to sign off on these things, you would think.
2: You well know, they're, they're definitely being signed off and, uh, how much of this is, uh, you know uh, where is it being reported i mean how uh, how aware was council in terms of these uh uh these changes in scopes and what resulted in, in more consultant assignments being issued i mean again i think uh you know i mean typically when i look at audit reports i mean we 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 have findings we then go through the findings and then we you know we uh you know we state uh you know if there's an uh agreement in terms of the conclusions that are being reached. Um, this one's a little different in the sense of uh, we have not had a chance to kind of get to the bottom of everything that's in. The, I'm not suggesting for a second that there aren't issues here. I just uh, I think it's important for us to look at every item that's in this document and uh, uh, and agree with the findings of our auditor or if there's some questions that we have uh, in terms of those findings to issue them. All of this has got to be
0: reported back to council. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: That's happening right now in Burlington uh, with their high schools and the potential for closures there, and everybody's up in arms, and justifiably so. We can understand that. You've heard many of those details on the program over the last couple of weeks. But uh, the Hamilton Board continues with their review, and accommodation review, for uh, public schools, elementary schools here in the area. And uh, there's uh, yet another revision, which may satisfy some people. We think. We don't know yet. Joining us to talk about this is Todd White, who is the chairman of the board. He's also the trustee for Ward 5 for the Hamilton Board of Education and the chairman. And he joins us here on The Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Todd. How are you doing today?
3: Good morning, Bill. Very well. How are you?
1: Good. You still have to wear body armor to these meetings?
3: Oh, (laughs) protective padding,
1: perhaps, yes. Yeah, it's getting a little testy. Let's maybe do a little review before we talk about where you are on this. When we last talked, this sounds like a serial radio show here, (laughs) uh, things were getting pretty ugly because there was a proposal, not necessarily a guarantee, but a proposal that Hess Street School might close, and we talked to a number of community groups from the surrounding area that were upset about that uh... that was on the table Uh, there's been a revision on that where are we now
3: so last night trustees received uh... updated reports from staff And they've included for the two review areas, there's the West Hamilton Central area with Hess. Uh, There's also the Ancaster review area. So staff updated their recommendations in both of those uh, two accommodation reviews. Uh, Trustees listened last night, uh, heard the new updated recommendations. We also received uh, numerous recommendations for each of the volunteer advisory committees. So in other words, we have a lot more scenarios that have entered the mix as of uh, last night.
1: Such is. Well, let's talk about Hess Street and then we'll talk about the Ancaster situation.
3: Sure, absolutely. So in terms of uh, Hest Street School, uh, staff's updated recommendation is to actually rebuild uh, Hest Street School on its existing site, uh, creating it as a uh, K-8 school and combining it with Strathcona Elementary School, that's a to K-5 school about uh, five blocks to the west. Uh, and that would be a, a brand new build uh, on that existing site. They have a backup plan that if we're not successful in getting ministry funding for that, uh, that Hess Street closed, similar to the original initial option that wasn't uh, very popular, uh, and moved the students predominantly uh, to uh, Dr. Davies School.
1: So where are you with this? Now, because I'm sure the people around the Hess Street School uh, are going to be pleased about this, uh, but obviously if you're going to rebuild on the same site, there's going to be some problem with accommodation during construction, isn't there?
3: Yeah, so this, this, these are the intricacies now that trustees need to figure out. And this is the part and I know from our past discussions that you know has, has frustrated me because as this process rolls out, trustees have very little say. Staff frame the conversation at the beginning with their report. The review committee uh, takes ownership of it for a number of months. But there is that lack of leadership from the elected officials, the trustees, because were asked to observe during that period as per the ministry policy. So this is the time when we can finally uh, start vocalizing some of our opinions and actually landing some of these uh, questions. So personally, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in in terms of this area. Um, I think uh, we do need to invest in Hess and Strathcona, but not in the way that you might see on paper, where it's as simple as let's combine two schools here or combine two schools there. I think we need to think outside the box and start creating something um, a lot more interesting, um, making sure that we uh, meet
1: community needs, etc. So, well, blue sky for a minute, what would you be thinking of? I, I, I know you can't dictate policy at this stage, but what's, what's Todd White thinking could be done here?
3: Yeah, and, and and this is exactly why perhaps I've been the only excited person through this process, because all, all the while, you know, a lot of the feedback has has really sparked our imagination in terms of what we could create. In my opinion, in this area, um, we need to create the best darn community hub um, that we can in, in West Central Hamilton and uh, when you think about it, we own Sir John A. Property, and we've talked a little bit about that in the past, but that's close to seven acres of property, perhaps the most prime real estate in this entire city right now. Mm -hmm. We own that. We have a school across the street, Hess Street, as you know, sits on 1.3 acres with virtually no green space. We have Strathcona School that sits on 1.1 acres with no green space. We have an opportunity to build probably the best community hub that we can in this city, and leverage that property on Sir John A. or another property in the area if other partners come forward. And it's not just a for for me personally, it's not just a matter of combining two schools as simple as that. That just sounds like you're taking two schools and putting it in one location. If we were to put a call out to partners and start understanding what some of the needs are in downtown Hamilton, for instance, I think you would see a lot of organizations jump at an opportunity to have free real estate on one of the best pieces of property in Hamilton, partner with a school board, we're constructing a new school. If we build one there, we would be covering the, the 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 base of that new construction. There's a lot of opportunity here, and I don't think this is something you necessarily rush. I think we take a step back and design, the, like I said, the best darn community hub possible. And that way, when we pull the trigger, if trustees approve it, then everyone can see quite clearly what they're getting. Because right now it's been a lot of question marks in terms of what that could even look like.
1: Well, what kind of community partners would you be looking at right now? Because I'm, it's no secret there are a lot of people looking at that piece of property right now uh, with, with great envy thinking, boy, what I could do with that parcel of land downtown.
3: That's right. So we would want to talk to anyone and everyone, and that's, and that's the difficulty in this process. So the review committee uh, in the in the in downtown Hamilton, the, the volunteers discussed a number of, options for partnerships but they're not in the position to start negotiating or or reaching out to partners nor partners going to make any firm commitments when the board hasn't decided its own future so we can kind of throw out some of those ideas but can we really get into what a partnership might include you can't so it it leaves a quite a bit of unknown um, in terms of what that could look like but i think to your question if we were to put out that that question to partners community others you'll start to see folks stepping forward, um, no doubt. And it could be anyone from public agencies to not-for-profits to other social services, health services. It could extend to a number of different options. But we don't know what's out there unless we start uh, asking those questions.
1: I'm just in my mind's eye trying to go around that neighborhood right now. Uh, uh, Community centers, swimming pools, things of that nature. And there's a lot of, of, of things that could actually happen in there. Uh, if you can get private sector investment. I know, you know, that's, let's face it, since we're throwing everything on the table, there's been some discussion about the arena across the road from Sir John A. MacDonald, and maybe, maybe you know, there should be a land swap. I, the, the, the sky's the limit here, I mean, because you're basically working with a blank piece of paper here.
3: Well, and that's why I've always been adamant that we retain Sir John A. I'm not personally in favor of, of selling it um, initially, because, once again, that's, the, one of the best pieces of real estate in the city. If others have, have somewhere else that they may want to partner with us nearby, perhaps there's a swap, but right now that keeps us in that conversation. We hold, uh, as a board of trustees, and that being land designated as ed- education for the time being, um, we, we hold that, that power and that control over what, uh, what we'd like to do with students and community first and foremost on our minds.
1: But with that in mind, if you're looking at, and, and again, we're blue-skying here. I don't want people to think, oh my, they're going to build a school there. They might. Uh, they, I don't know what's going to happen at this stage. A lot of this depends on just how much money the province wants to kick into this. You got it. But if that does happen, and if you move across the road to the John A. site uh, to, and look at this this combined Strathcona-Hess Street school prospect that you're talking about right now, that gives you two surplus pieces of property that you could sell to private development if you wanted to.
3: Correct. Yeah, it opens up other opportunities as well. I mean, in terms of a business case of the province, um, if you get enough partners on board and uh, check enough of their, their boxes in terms of uh, different services available, I think we could put forward a case that they couldn't say no to. Um, and then, of course, you have, uh, as you would mentioned, the existing properties that you could sell as well, put that money into the project. Um you can keep going from there and there's other property perhaps in the area whether it's city owned privately owned um if sir john a is not the desirable site while i'm throwing it out there and others have thrown it out there as well through the process it could be another site in the area and we'd be all all years like i said we want to deliver the best possible school for those communities and whether it's on that site or elsewhere we haven't decided but let's Let's go for it.
1: Well, it is your piece of property. We're talking about the John A. site right now. Have you had discussions with the city about partnerships?
3: Uh, not, not quite yet because we haven't decided where we've, we've landed. We've had a great amount of support from the two area councillors, Aidan Johnson, Jason Farr in that area. Uh, the mayor certainly chimed in in terms of his support uh, for the Hest Street community as well. So we know that folks at the city are listening. Uh, we have a fantastic working relationship and number of partnerships underway with them. So, of course, we'd be the first ones we'd be approaching uh, as we look at some of these options. Uh, but we can go
1: beyond that as well. You, you talked about community hubs, and, and I would argue that it's already there. Uh, Because that's one of the good news stories we heard when we started looking into what was going on at Hess Street. And I'm sure you're aware of it, of course, as as the chairman of the board for the, the Board of Education uh that's already become a community hub for new canadians it's a it's a, a gathering spot for them there's a number of programs that are that are going on within the school right now for some of those new canadians to get acclimatized to, to the country and to this community for and in that particular neighborhood as well uh you, you could expand that i mean you don't want to lose that you want to expand something like that because that's one of the fastest growing areas in the city right now
3: that that's right and the one piece in terms of improving that is as you know over the years as the community changes uh some of those services within the school change but it's been more of an evolution where it's kind of a piecemeal approach um, i think when you design a hub from a new build that's where you start opening other opportunities it's difficult in an existing building with all of the restrictions based on the layout of the school the size of the property etc so this is where i think we can put some better strategy uh behind the the entire intent and that's why i think it opens up a lot of doors
1: what about time frame then? You said you wanted to take your time and make sure you did this right, but there is some pressure here.
3: So, so well, y- yes and no. Um, I think in terms of pressure for, from a, a school board point of view... We were clear from the beginning that this wasn't a quick fix. We're not, we didn't go into the West Hamilton area to uh, try to save a couple dollars in the next couple of years. This, the intent wasn't just to make a, uh, a quick decision and sell a piece of property. Uh, we asked folks from the beginning, how do you envision your school communities 25 years from now? Um, so if it takes us a couple of years to get that vision right, we're prepared to do that. This review actually wasn't originally scheduled until 2019. So we actually moved it up um, because we knew that there were some of these uh, community hub partnerships available. So we have time. We, we don't feel backed into a corner by any means. Uh, there's nothing devastating happening at, say, Hess or Strathcona right now. The roofs aren't caving in. The schools are working for the time being. Um, but we're thinking 25 years out. And if we need to take our time to get that right, let's 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 take that time.
1: Let's uh, talk about Ancaster, because I know that was part of the discussion as well. And very similar problems, different area of the city, but very similar problems. Uh, population growth, uh, sh- population shifts right now. How is the board moving on handling that situation?
3: So that, that's an interesting one. Staff originally recommended a new build um, and two additions. They revised that where they're asking for two new schools now. They've upped the ante. Uh, and are asking for an addition on a third. Um, all most of those schools right now are K to sixes, a bit of a different model than you might be familiar with around the rest of the city. Um, this would move all or change all of the schools to K to eights. Um, but ultimately, their biggest challenge all along hasn't been population. Same with West Hamilton, population hasn't been the issue. Uh, It's infrastructure and what the design of those school communities look like uh, a couple decades out. So in Ancaster, the idea of building two new schools and renovating another uh, with an addition, I think, is is beneficial because we're trying to renew that infrastructure uh, because right now it's, it's it's not in good shape whatsoever.
1: You just had a brand new school open up there just a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I guess now. That's
3: right. That's the Tiffany Hills area, yeah.
1: And uh, but you're looking at others right now, like Russo. I just drove by Russo. Uh, it's hard for some people that don't live there to say the old part of Lancaster. But I mean, it's uh, it's just off uh, Wilson Street, Mohawk Road, I guess. There in an older neighborhood with older infrastructure, and it, it's kind of a tired building.
3: Yeah, oh, it is. It's very similar to uh, what we did in Stony Creek last uh, school year. Um, it's that old Wentworth uh, school board infrastructure, where most of those builds are '50s, '60s, '70s, um, not fantastic spaces, really not fantastic infrastructure in most cases. Um, the buildings need a lot of work. Uh, the school communities aren't necessarily tied to the bricks and mortar. Uh, they seem very open to to new builds and rebuilds, uh, additions, renovations. So uh, they have the populations. It's just a matter of how we want to design the school communities. So it's, it's really interesting to see how the review committee uh, handles a number of those options. But no matter which option you look at, the number one theme is is infrastructure. So that's the common theme. I think the goal in this case, while we may not have a, the solution quite yet, I think that you'll see a pretty large uh, request in terms of dollars to the Ministry of Education when all is said and done.
1: Todd, just to, I, I, I know you don't want to jump into somebody else's uh, political situation right now, but you know that our friends across the bay in Burlington are going through real problems, uh, as you guys did a few years ago with your high school accommodation review. Uh, they're having some problems with downtown schools and things of this nature. Has there been any discussion at all with the province, with the education ministry right now, about me- perhaps changing the model of funding for all of these things? I mean, this is putting neighborhood against neighborhood and, and school against school, and it's, it's it's not healthy for community building. And and fr- frankly, as we talked about at the beginning, this is somewhat problematic for the boards as well.
3: Yeah, and it puts boards in in a tough position. I would say, though, that our board has learned a lot from some of those decisions back, you know, five, six years ago. Um, it's really evolved since then. So I, I look at Burlington, and I feel like kind of I'm going back in a bit of a time machine to when we did our secondary reviews. And it, it, in many cases, it seems to be a lose-lose situation. In terms of our uh, current elementary reviews and recent elementary reviews, there always is that fear that the board um, or the ministry um, is trying to save dollars and close schools and hurt communities. In this case, I don't see that lose-lose at all in, in either of our cases. Like I said, timing isn't urgent. Um, I look at it, and I always do, not just what can we leverage from the ministry and close so we can leverage the odd buck here or there. Uh, I think the real question that we need to ask is, what do we want despite dollars? How would we design schools? And even when you remove the dollar element, schools still may close. You may decide that the size of a school um, doesn't meet the needs of the community He might decide the grade structure doesn't meet the needs of the community schools need to evolve so I try to remove the dollars from the beginning figure out what we actually want and then then figure out how to get the dollars to make that happen and backwards approach but a lot of folks don't necessarily see that because they're used to the the opposite
1: well I know and and there's always going to be that uh, that group that's going to say well I got a school across the road from me I don't want it to close but how do you sell them on the bigger picture
3: well, and I, I think that's where we need to show them what they're going to get. And there's been a lot of unknowns. So if you were to say we're going to combine heston kona, what does that look like? Where is it going to be? Uh, what's going to be included in that school? Um, until you can answer all of those questions, of course there's going to be hesitation. Um, same with Ancaster right now. The Most of the, the, the options that staff have put forward... Um, have received great feedback from the community. The one uh, school that there's a bit of tension is Queen's Rangers. Staff are recommending that there be a boundary review, so Queen's Rangers may see themselves going to the uh, new Beverly School, not in the Ancaster area, but in the other side of Flamborough. Um, or they could see themselves in C.H. Bray, but we do, they don't know the answer to that question yet. So a lot of those communities see themselves in limbo, and until you can start to answer those questions, you're going to obviously have a lot of anxieties in different areas.
1: Well, Queen's Rangers is one of those examples of one of those older schools, isn't it, from about 50 years ago?
3: Yeah, the infrastructure is, uh, is, is is older. The building's not in bad shape, actually, but the population is dipped down below 1 uh, 150, and actually one of the challenges there is um, by ministry policy, we're not fully funded for even a principal at that school uh, because it's considered too small by ministry standards, and it doesn't meet the rural definition uh, that that they've created in terms of far enough away that they would f- fully fund the, a principal. So there are some challenges there. Um, there's two ways to approach that: either we find a way to draw students into the school, make it stronger in terms of its population, or um, if you did close the school. Uh, what's best for that area and where do students see themselves attending, making sure that we give them that uh, that
1: voice and that option.
0: You're listening to The
1: Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
3: on AM 900 CHML.
1: In Hamilton, all eyes are uh, on the Johnson Picker Courthouse as uh, uh, the accused hacker for hire, Karim Baratov, uh, is uh, continuing with his bail hearing today. What's going to be happening and what are the implications? We're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Jeffrey Reed, a Hamilton attorney, to try to give us uh, some clarity on this. Jeff, thanks for the time. It's yeah. good to have you with us today. Good morning, uh, Bill. How are you? I'm great, thanks very much. This is day two of this hearing. I, I guess the first question I've got here, Jeff, among many, uh, who has status at this hearing? Okay, well, basically
0: uh, the uh, the federal government uh, prosecutes these uh, um, as the agent for the foreign uh, uh, country, in this case, the United States. So um, in this case, there's an arrest warrant issued under the Extradition Act, and uh, that act provides that uh, where a person has been arrested, they're to be brought before a judge. In this case, judge specifically means of the court, and the court specifically means the Superior Court of Justice. So unlike most offenses, but not all, murder, for example, is an, is an exception, um, uh, which go to the Ontario Court of Justice, or the so-called provincial court. This goes to the Superior Court. So now a judge of the Superior Court is having the hearing. The second feature of it, is that it's uh, conducted much like a, a bail review in which uh, the uh, the uh, accused has to show a reason why it uh, should be released pending the decision on extradition. So that's what they're doing right now, and uh, they conduct it uh, just that way. It's, it's quite an elaborate process, but um, that's what
1: they're in the midst of doing. If somebody had asked me over the weekend uh, when we knew this was coming up again today, uh, you know, it's, it's the U.S. authorities that want them there. Why aren't they arguing this? They, they're not allowed to, to do that. No, they don't no. have status in Ontario courts, do they?
0: No, no. They, uh, they, they bring their extradition request to the uh, Government of Canada. Government of Canada then decides whether or not to issue a, a warrant based on that, and if they do do that, then, then uh, it's executed and... and uh, 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 lawyers from, uh, well, I was going to say Department of Justice, but that's probably old. It's probably the Public Prosecution Service now that does it. But essentially, it's it's, on t- it's uh, government of Canada lawyers acting essentially as agents for the foreign authority uh, appear and argue and have status uh, on the matter. So the parties to this proceeding are the uh, government of Canada acting as an agent for the uh, foreign authority, in this case, the United States of America, I understand, uh, and then, uh, of
1: course, the uh, the accused person. So the, the Crown prosecutor, who we're told, well, at least uh, in the last hearing, was uh, Heather Graham from the Crown's office, uh, is making the case. Now, does the Crown have to present a case in a situation like this, or is it simply relying on information from, in this case, the U.S. government who, la- who laid the charges?
0: Well, that's effectively what it is. It's relied upon information from the U.S. government. And uh, it kind of skipped ahead just for a, a moment, because when you get to the actual hearing, the hearing is based on a documentary record, which basically means that the... Foreign government prepares uh, something called a, uh, or, or at least the the, uh, the, uh, the federal government will prepare something called a record of the case, and it's uh, it's actually prepared by the foreign state, but uh, but it, it contains the information that they say shows that an offense was committed and that this person committed the offense, and meets the requirements for extradition, and so they essentially rely upon that to present that to the uh, uh, the judge here but the uh problem for the accused person here is that the, the accused person now has to uh, uh show that they're entitled to have a release um uh and instead of just being kept in jail pending the uh the hearing um it's a, it's a bit of a reverse uh, from what you'd normally see so that's how it works
1: all right and how soon will this this extradition hearing actually start to take because this is not the extradition hearing i want people to be clear on that this is just the bail hearing that that's we're right. hearing.
0: It's just the bail hearing well i shouldn't say just cuz it's so important yeah, but yeah. yes it's a it's a it's a preliminary skirmish you might say in this contest between the accused on the one side and the or respondent, you would use the extradition language, but basically the accused person and the uh, and the government on the other side. So yes, it's uh, it's uh, it's a preliminary uh, round, as it were, getting ready for an extradition. An extradition here, it could take some quite some time to pull together because it would depend on how complicated the case is and how much time parties need to uh, to uh, be able to present it. They, the government's probably more or less, more or less, I would say, in its go position already. I'm sure that they've done everything, so they they wouldn't have taken the step uh, until they were good and ready to go, at, at which point it's really going to be a function of how long the defense needs in order to uh, be able to properly put its case together to resist this.
1: You mentioned something rather interesting, uh, because I think a lot of us have the mindset that, you know, innocent until proven guilty, and, and of course if charges are, are pressed against somebody, uh, the onus is on the Crown to prove their case. Uh who is the onus on in this bail hearing is it on uh, the the the, the Baratov team here the lawyers are, to prove that he he deserves bail or is it on the crown to 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 try to prove that he doesn't
0: Well they, he's going to have to show cause why, uh, uh-huh. why he should be released and um uh uh, that's you know it, because the, uh, the it's done the same way as if it was a, a a murder case under section 522 of the criminal code because the extradition act talks about it re- there's a lot of referencing back and forth that's what makes this thing really complicated uh, to to look at but 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 basically the extradition act says that the um, the uh, the proceeding is uh, uh, done the same way as if it was uh, under section uh, 522 of the criminal code. And then, if you take a look at, uh, and so they, that person has to show cause. That's that's a fancy way of saying they got to justify ways to get out. So, yes, it doesn't change the presumption of innocence, but it, but in pral, rat, practical terms, it it does because it changes the burden. And the burden here is for that person to show why they uh, they're a safe bet for release under section. Well, it's section 18 of the extradition act, and that refers to section 522 of the criminal code. And section 522 of the criminal code says that where a person is charged with uh, such and such an offence or whatever, um, that uh, the uh, the court has to show that the has to order the person detained in custody unless that person, having been given a reasonable opportunity to do so, shows cause why the detention is not justified. And then you go back to other provisions of the criminal code, which says justified in relation to Section 515, sub 10. And then if you take a look at those sections, as I said, it's kind of complicated. But but there are three grounds for detaining a person. So those are the primary ground, which is um, the, the cues in this case will have to show, if you let me go, the court's satisfied that this person will come back for the hearing and not just disappear into the woods. Uh, number two... Uh, the person has to show well. If the court satisfied that uh, they'll come back, the court is also satisfied that they won't commit an offense um, in the meantime. And then uh, there's a third level, which is called the uh, uh, third. Well, they call it tertiary level. Just means a third level, which is in some cases uh, the court can keep a person in custody where it's such an outrageous offense, or the circumstances are so uh, uh, outrageous and and strong that it, that the administration of justice will be brought into disrepute, which is a fancy way of saying people would lose. Confidence in the uh, in the justice system. If the person were released, I, I usually uh, I don't think it was necessarily directly in play, but to, but to give an example, a high water mark. And I don't for a moment suggest this fellow is is all like this, but just to illustrate the point, if you had a case like Bernardo, Bernardo would probably have been uh, at that third level as well, because people would say, well, even if he's going to come back and even if he won't commit offenses, boy, this is so egregious that I don't know if we can just let this guy out because people lose confidence. So those are the three levels. So yes, in summary and substance the accused has to show the judge why it's justifiable to let him out until he has his hearing. He has to show the court that he's going to be a good bet for coming back uh, and, and he's safe to be released. He'll come back. B, that he won't be committing offenses when he gets out. And uh, C, that uh, the public uh, interest is, uh, is satisfied that uh, it won't offend members of the public who are reasonably informed uh, and, and, and acting reasonably that won't offend them that he should be released wait, waiting for his
1: extradition hearing. I, I don't know if we can get inside the judge's head as all oh, this is going on. Uh, because <laughs> well, a lot of lawyers would like to do that, too, when they get their cases in front of the court. <laughs> It'd make your life a lot easier, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but but, with, with what's happened here, and you've just outlined the three major criteria here that are going to have to be evaluated here, uh, given the circumstances of what we know anyway about this case, or the, this, this alleged case, I guess, at this stage, Jeff, uh, is flight risk at the top of that list?
0: I would say it probably is. I certainly think the government is playing that card, uh, as far as I know. I have to tell you, I'm not privy to anything in this case. I probably know less than you. I've just read what I've read in uh, from news reports from here and there. But, um, but it seems to me that from the news stories which talk about uh, other persons who were allegedly implicated in this, and have, as I understand from the news stories, have, have uh, allegedly gone to Russia where there's no extradition treaty. Um, and, and because of the stories that uh, there's a, you know, that this fellow, has a uh, has a lot of means, and therefore that means to uh, to possibly use for a flight should he choose. That that's obviously going to be a major uh, concern that the uh, government will uh, will play uh, up uh, I- at the hearing, and which will basically put the. Uh, um, uh, the challenge to the accused to show that his release plan will give enough assurance and and so to do that and again i 'm not privy to anything, but typically uh, the, you, what you would show things such as to show that uh, any means of uh, leaving the country have been uh, removed, such as passports what uh, travel documents what have you be that you have very strong uh, supervision regime in place. And, you know, um, it happens in criminal cases, too. Uh, from time to time, if a person has the means, uh, you might even try and say, well, uh, for example, we'll use a, an electronic bracelet that can be oh, monitored. Yeah. So, so th- there are tools that can be done, depending on just how worried the court is, to be able to assuage those worries and say, okay, we can meet those concerns. So you, you don't have to keep me in a jailhouse. I, I, you know, you can be con- uh, have enough assurance that I will turn up when I have to turn up for my hearing.
1: Yeah, we've we've talked about the relations and everything else, and I, I mean, even if we remove passports, I mean, uh, I mean, Julian Assange found his way over to Russia, you know, notwithstanding all, all the other things that people were trying to put in the way. But no, uh,
0: not Assange, uh, you mean uh, the other fellow from uh, Assange went to? Oh the yeah, I'm Ecuadorian sorry, yeah, yeah, right? I'm
1: talking WikiLeaks, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: Assange went to the, the Ecuadorian embassy in what London? Is it? Yeah. To escape Sweden, and uh, I, you're talking about a fellow whose name won't come to me, who was the uh, responsible. Snow- for Snowden. Me.
1: We're talking about Thank Edward you, Snowden. Snowden. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, but but it just shows an example about flight risk and and exactly. how things can happen. And y- yes. Uh, so the U.S. Is, is obviously pressuring the Canadian – well, not pressuring the Canadian government, but working through the Canadian government and yeah. pressuring the court, I guess, right. to try to get this done. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, – how how does a judge uh, evaluate some of the information that they're hearing? For instance, uh, the father, I guess, testified in the yeah. first part of the bail hearing the other day, essentially saying we'll put up the money, et cetera, right. uh, which always raises a question. And, and again, Jeff, maybe you could address that. Because most of us, of course, are never going to be inside our courtroom, and and even fewer of us probably in a situation like this. Right. So we said, you know, we we fall back on well. Wow, I saw it in a movie once, or I saw this on TV. Mm-hmm. How does how does a judge decide if, if they're even leaning towards bail uh, on evidence of, uh, uh, of setting a, a for instance a dollar figure and setting <laughs> parameters.
0: Well, uh, that's a, a, a dark uh, art. Let me just say because uh, <laughs> there there isn't any sort of like a a, 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 a meat uh, chart that says if it's this amount of uh, you know offense, then it's that amount of uh, bail. But I will say in general a couple things. First of all, the judge will decide on evidence. The evidence is originally presented in an affidavit form, and then, uh, of course, the opponent side. So, so in this case, for example, and again, I'm not privy to any of this, but, but, but typically um, there will be an affidavit from the accused, also from people who would uh, come forward to be his sureties, I understand his parents, for example, but they will come forward in an affidavit form, which is a sworn document, and say, we're willing to do this, this is it. these are our circumstances, this is how we can back our word, this is our plan, so forth. Then when the affidavit's filed, the opposing side, which in this case would be the crown, uh, will have an opportunity to cross-examine. So, in effect, they'll almost certainly be have been giving uh, 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 live evidence in front of the judge, who has an opportunity to evaluate it, just like a judge would evaluate any witness in any case on anything and decide what's credible, it's not credible. How you know how do they present themselves and so forth, and the judge will be looking at uh, not just the integrity of the individuals who come forward and say, "I'm willing to back this person," and uh, also, you know, uh, it looks look at uh, whether they can sort of literally uh put their money where their mouth is so that they they've got a lot um riding on it i will say that uh in extradition cases the uh, the amount of bail that is uh, is ordered is usually radically higher than non-extradition normal criminal cases for example if you, if you had a normal criminal case where a person might be released on uh, you know say 5 or 10,000 dollars and they were, uh, and somebody was coming forward and pledging uh, their their worth, and uh, and saying I've got uh, assets that are worth X amount, it was not at all un- unusual for the judge to uh, to uh, uh, make an order I- almost for the whole amount of the asset that's being pledged. So, for example, if somebody would come forward and say I've you know I've got property that's worth, uh, it, it, in a criminal case it might be uh, one that would uh, be worth release on five or ten thousand dollars. It wouldn't be unusual to see a judge order fifty, hundred thousand uh, dollars in the amount of release. Basically. Uh, the numbers are so much higher than in normal criminal cases, and I don't know. That just seems to be a matter of practice that uh, that I'm aware of, at
1: least. Now, when you say based on evidence, uh, when the judge is making that evaluation, yeah. it's not the evidence of the charges against him. It's the evidence about whether or not the, he, yeah. he meets this criteria. Th- because right. I found it interesting that uh, in the last session here last week, right. uh, in cross-examination of, of the accused, uh, the Crown was actually asking about his income, how he made his money, and things of that nature. Is that yeah. germane to bail, or, or are they delving into the, the charges against him?
0: It, it may be a fine line. Uh, under the criminal code, which is brought in to the Extradition Act by reference, which is a fancy way of saying that the Extradition Act says, look, when it comes to bail, let's just borrow in all the provisions of the criminal code. So you look at the criminal code and say, what does that say? And there's a provision of the criminal code that's been around for many, many years, and it says that you can't ask the accused person about the offense. But there can be a lot of questions that are peripheral, and so, um, you know, it will come to a point at which, uh, if it's getting too close to the, uh, to the meat of the matter, uh, there would probably be an objection. On the other hand, reasonable questions that are relevant to things, uh, such as if you're released, uh, how you're going to support yourself, and, 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 and questions about your means, to, in other words, from the, defense, from the Crown point of view, to try and show, well, maybe you've got the means to uh, ski, flee the country. Those are going to be sort of relevant, so a judge will have to make a call on that, at which point uh, are they getting so close to the matter that uh, they're actually asking about the offense, rather than just uh, things that are relevant to questions of release, um, and that that's just be a a judgment matter uh, in the course of the hearing itself.
1: Do you feel that, uh, and again, you don't have any insider information here, but do you get the feeling that this is going to get wrapped up today? Um, Hard to say, uh, because I don't know how
0: much, uh, I I think possibly from what I read in the news reports, it it may well, uh, the... um, uh, and, and, it, and and whether a judge needs to reserve or not will depend. Most judges probably will have a pretty good gut feeling, especially if they've already had a day and they're coming back for another day and they've been able to sort of ruminate about this without reaching a decision until they've got all the evidence and they've, they've got some thoughts already. So it I wouldn't surprise me if there was a decision. But, you know, a lot of judges will uh, reserve for a variety of reasons. Uh, maybe, they, maybe they're troubled by something, they have to think it through. Maybe they have to organize their thoughts in a way so that if they give a decision, it's uh, it's one that is understandable and just and you know, and can be um, understood by all concerned and, and, if necessary, reviewed. So, uh, I, yeah, I think the hearing will wrap up. Whether the judgment comes down today is uh, another question. But essentially what you have to think about in a case like this, Bill, is that the accused person is being told you're staying in unless you can show why we, you should get out. You have to satisfy the court, and that means the accused person is going to have to bring in what, what we call uh, a, a release plan. Um, it's not a term of art. You're not going to look up in the criminal code and say, aha, capital R, capital p release plan but it's but it it describes what the accused person is going to have to do to bring to court something that says to the court okay if you let me out you can be satisfied i'm coming back i'm not going to get into trouble and it's not going to offend the public at large that i'm you know been released while i'm waiting for my hearing the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml